Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Felix Adler once said, The hero is one who kindles a great light in the world, who sets up blazing torches in the dark streets of life for men to see by. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 18 years. And I'm Jonathan, and that long-term approach, um, we have different perspectives, and there are three of them, godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 966th broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. That's right, and we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. We want to thank you for joining us today. This is a call-in format, and we are absolutely caller-friendly. So let's get started. Jonathan, what is it that we're talking about on this fine Monday evening? Rick, our question is, Jesus' resurrection, what changed? And our theme text is found in John chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And folks, today we will not be taking phone calls because we want to tell you a really profound story. After the greatest act of love ever committed, Jesus lay dead in a donated tomb. His loyal companions and followers were stunned, sickened by what they had witnessed. But beyond the gory details of this death, they were hit with the uncomfortable thought that perhaps all they had known the past three and a half years was a lie, fake, delusional. This man Jesus they had trusted and loved was dead. He died like everyone else. There was no last-minute fire from heaven to kill the Roman soldiers or the angry mob of his own brethren demanding his death. There was no angelic rescue team to pull him off that dreaded piece of wood. He was dead. For real. No one was coming to save them from Roman rule. They would not be sitting on anyone's right hand in the new government. They had seemingly been duped. Now what? Well, three days later, it was imperative that the risen Jesus convinced them beyond the shadow of a doubt that all he had promised was real and was happening. His followers needed to be 100% convinced and energized to tell the good news at any cost to all who would listen. The man Jesus was gone forever. But the Spirit, Jesus, would have life within himself and power to restore all of mankind back to his Father. They needed to urgently tell that story to you and to me. How did those disciples go from feeling the ultimate betrayal and grief to absolute certainty and joy? 
To set our context, we will begin with a partial quote from the book Moments with the Savior, the chapter on the road to Emmaus. It is called Good Friday, but for these two followers of Jesus, nothing about it is good. Everything good this day has died, and it seems to them it will be Friday for the rest of their lives. For the rest of Jerusalem, though, it's Sunday. The Passover Sabbath is over and life has returned to normal. But for these two men, the sounds of life returning to normal seems a sacrilege. For them, nothing could ever be normal again. No Passover could come without memories of him who was led as a lamb to the slaughter. No sacrifice could be made without remembering the way he was sheared and cut up and stretched out on that God-forsaken cross. Since these two were friends of the man on that cross, a lot of strangers wanted to ask them questions, find out exactly what happened, and exactly what the disciples were going to do now. But the two were so disoriented from grief, they didn't know anything vaguely, let alone exactly. And what they did know, they didn't want to talk about, especially with strangers. And since the city was a spilling silo of strangers, they wanted out. They decide the country would be a good place to go, where there is space to think, to talk, to sort things out. And they have plenty to sort. They have left everything behind to follow Jesus. They have staked their future on his words, their hopes, their dreams, everything. Now he is gone. And somehow, they will have to get along without him. And we will come back to the road to Emmaus in a little while. Folks, today's podcast is all about tragedy, doubt, and clarity. When we go through the all-too-familiar life experiences of tragedy and doubt, what we find is that we're always seeking clarity to balance them, to, to help us cope with and, and, and to overcome them. At the time of Jesus' crucifixion and death, his followers were overwhelmed in tragedy and doubt, and Jesus, the risen Jesus, sought to prove to them that the seemingly incomprehensible facts of his resurrection and change were not only factual, but the most world-changing factual events that would ever occur. Giving his followers clarity in such immense and unique circumstances would not be easy. But Jesus, well, Jesus is good at not easy. And this is the story of how he would help his followers to see, absorb, and stand for his cause as their risen Messiah. The revealing of Jesus' resurrection came in steps, small steps, for the magnitude of change and significance that needed to be absorbed by his followers was overwhelming. We begin with the first hint that Jesus was alive. So this will be the first revealing step, the first of several revealing steps of, of Jesus being revealed to his disciples slowly and methodically. And this first step is an angelic announcement. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and Salome came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like 
dead men. I mean, Jonathan, you think about that vision. You have this angel sitting on top of this huge stone that was rolled away, and literally the, the Roman soldiers looking paralyzed as these women, these humble women came to serve their dead master. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he is lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So you think about it. What was the most gentle and yet believable way that the disciples could receive the message that this Jesus, who they knew, who they saw crucified, who they saw dead, was again alive? The most gentle, gentle and believable way was by announcement, an announcement of an empty tomb. Not some passerby announcing the tomb was empty, and not some Roman soldier's report. This announcement had to have a higher credibility. So, God chose an angel. There is no more powerful messenger than an angel. This first message of Jesus being alive was secondhand because it was not Jesus himself. The angel said, First, don't be afraid. So similar to the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth. Second, I know why you are here. You are seeking Jesus, who was crucified. Third, he isn't here. Fourth, he is risen, as he said. It was important to establish that fact that Jesus was a true prophet and that this very fact established it because he had said. Fifth, the angel personally took them by the hand and said, Come, look, see for yourselves. Don't take my word for it. He isn't there anymore. And sixth, go tell the others. So, Jonathan, that message from this angel was a powerful message, and it was a calm, reassuring message in all of those six steps that you just reiterated. He gently guided them to a reality that would have been just too hard for them to get otherwise. He's not here. He's not here. So while the actual message was a simple statement of fact. The delivery of the message was actually a very dramatic event. The drama, I mean, the drama, the drama, you've got the angel sitting on the top of the rolled away stone and the, and the guard sitting there unable to guard. So the drama got their undivided attention while the message simply showed them that, that the door of clarity, the clarity that we all seek in, in, in times of our tragedy and doubt and difficulty. That door of clarity was, in fact, open. So, folks, for us, when we're faced with tragedy, with doubt and grief, are we open to hearing the Word of God through whatever messenger He may choose to assure us that the door of clarity is, in fact, open? Rick, let's go to the second revealing step. Okay. Jesus appeared as himself. He appears in a familiar way. Matthew 28, 8 through 10, And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them 
and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So, for this second step, and this second step is Jesus now appearing as himself, and he appears in a very familiar way. And we're being specific about that because we're going to see the unfolding of how Jesus would appear uh, to, to gradually teach his disciples everything that had changed. Because the original question that you asked for this, this uh, podcast was Jesus' resurrection. What changed? A lot changed with Jesus, and then therefore a lot could change for the disciples and then, therefore, a lot could change for the rest of the world. So for this second step to be a powerful follow-up to the angelic announcement, Jesus would have to appear as himself. There really was no choice on this, for human nature needs a more solid base on which to build a life-changing belief. And remember, believing in the resurrected, resurrected Jesus was a life-changing belief. This second step adds personal recognition to their received information. Had Jesus appeared as anything other than the old, familiar Jesus, it would not have been believable. It was a logical second step. Jesus didn't push them away. He let them touch him and worship him. He gave them the ability to have a little bit of a feel for the communion they once had before. So that first step was the uh, the announcement by an angel, a third party. The second step is Jesus appearing as Jesus is. What message does Jesus personally give them? There are four parts to the message. First, he told them not to be afraid. Second, he told them to go tell the others, make sure that they know this, spread it by word of mouth. Third, he told them to instruct his brethren to go to Galilee. And fourth, he told them, don't worry, I'm not going to disappear. I'm going to see you again in Galilee. So again, when you look at the way Jesus treated them at this point, the first thing he basically says to them is, don't be afraid. The first thing the angel said to them was, don't be afraid. That's right. Why? Because this was a fearful environment that they were entering into. You know, the idea of dealing with someone who was raised from the dead. Well, let me back up. They had, a, they had witnessed raising from the dead before. La right. Lazarus. Lazarus, right. right. And it was maybe a couple of weeks before this. Mm -hmm. All right, but here's the difference. Jesus was doing the raising. And so the fear is not there because Jesus is doing the raising. Here... Jesus is not, Jesus is being raised. And so the fear would have been tremendous because the way the crucifixion happened, and this was so out of context with everything they had ever known before. So Jesus, in, in, in coming back to them, would break it to them very slowly, very easily that, yes, it's me, but there are things that are very, very different. Jesus not only looked familiar, he acted in a familiar way. I mean, the way he, he, he uh, introduced himself, do not be afraid, go and take, uh, take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. He's just saying, hey, look, you know, here's our schedule, just abide by the schedule, you know, just like old times. <laughs> okay? So he gives them the, this assurance, and he gives them instruction. 
This combination added to the angelic announcement truly began to address their doubts and enhanced the reality of the open door of clarity. Like, okay, maybe this really is true. Maybe, maybe it is bigger and better than I actually thought. So for ourselves, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we find our doubts addressed when we go back to read and meditate on our risen Lord and his mission? Are we familiar enough with Jesus to see him and be guided by him to greater clarity? Because that's essentially what he was teaching these disciples in this very first revealment of himself personally. The first revealment was by an angel, but now Jesus is essentially introducing himself and saying, I am here, and don't be afraid, because what's happening is all in God's will. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Today's episode is Jesus' Resurrection, What Changed? Coming up, angels and recognizing Jesus, a good start but we have just scratched the surface. That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Today's episode is Jesus' Resurrection. What changed? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 9.30 Eastern. That means we're on right now. If you want to make a comment, we'd love to hear from you. All right. So, Jonathan, we're going to continue now. We've gone through the first two revealing steps, the angel uh, announcing Jesus had been raised, and then Jesus showing himself very, very briefly. The third revealing step, John believes from an empty grave, faith without the dramatic experience. In this step, Mary Magdalene plays an important role in the faith of the Apostle John. Back to the book, Moments with the Savior. It was in a garden ages ago that paradise was lost, and it is in a garden now that it would be regained. But Mary Magdalene doesn't know that. For her, the hobnail boot of the Roman Empire has crushed her hope and grounded in the dirt with its iron heel. Her hope was Jesus. He had changed her life, and she had followed him ever since. He had cast seven demons out of her, freeing her from untold torment. He had given her life, a reason to live, a place in his kingdom. He had given her worth and dignity, understanding, compassion, love. And he had given her hope. Now that hope lies at the bottom of her heart, flat and lifeless. But something helps her survive the cruel boot. Something resilient, like a blade of grass that springs up after being stepped on. That something is love. Love brought Mary to his cross, and love brings her now to his grave. So this next text that we're going to be going through from the Road to Emmaus account uh, as the apostle explains their experiences, they explain their experiences to Jesus. And this is from Luke chapter 24. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying 
that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. But as she wends her way along the dark garden path, she stumbles upon a chilling sight. The stone has been rolled away. The tomb has been violated. Just when she thinks life couldn't get worse, it gets worse. The night gets darker, her hope dimmer. Not even a pinpoint of starlight shines for her now. As she runs to tell the disciples, a legion of questions haunts her. Who took the body? The Roman government? The religious leaders? And why? What would they want with it? Have they given him a criminal's burial by dumping him outside the city in the garbaged fires of the Valley of Gehenna? Have they put him on display to further mock him? She finds Peter and John and in breathless fragments reports what she saw. So we know what happened. The women told, as they were supposed to tell. And this is actually faith in action. The disciples were not quite convinced and acted, so they had to run to go see for themselves. This is faith being tested. Now, you can't blame them for running. It's a normal response. We do that all the time if somebody tells us something and we say, oh, no, 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 I've got to go look for myself. It's not a bad thing especially under the tragic and doubtful clouds that they had lived under for the past few days. So they ran and found an empty tomb. The only thing they were convinced of was that Jesus wasn't there, except for John, whose faith at this moment was stronger. He believed. They ripped through the night on a ragged foot race to the tomb. Mary tries to follow, but her side is splitting. She will catch up, she tells herself, when she catches her breath. His lungs burning, Peter stoops into the cave entrance. The wings of the dove-gray dawn have extended a soft feather of light into the cave. As his eyes adjust, he takes careful notice of the burial wrappings made rigid by the resin from the spices. The linen cocoon lays intact on the stone slab. Intact, but hollow. Doubt and faith intermingle in their minds, bewildering them as they slowly walk away. Mary is left behind, tears her only companions. So, as we hear that reading from the book Moments with the Savior, and this is the chapter on Mary, we want to go to a scriptural account of those readings from that book to enhance what it's already begun to tell us. So we're reading from John chapter 20. So Mary Magdalene ran and came to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. So it's interesting that you have Peter highlighted here. Peter and the other disciple, they ran to the tomb. They went because they had to go see it for themselves. To hear it is one thing. To go see it unfolding, that's an entirely different matter. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So the other disciple is most likely younger than Peter, and he outruns him. But it's interesting that he gets there, he observes the scene, but he waits 
out of respect, he waits for the apostle Peter and does not set foot in that tomb until Peter arrives. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had come first to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. So you see the, the look of something deliberate. This was not something haphazard. There was a deliberate action that had happened in this tomb. So now in terms of the revealing of Jesus, obviously this was an important step. The women already believed because they saw him in the previous step, but John believed simply because the grave was empty. Why didn't Peter believe? Perhaps because of his denials of Jesus, he had a longer road to firmness of faith than John did. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. So they see, and there's still questions. So what we're observing is a slow, methodical process of conviction. An angelic announcement, an interchange with a familiar Jesus, and the message of these things relayed to others. Now the others must find their own footing. Faith cannot always have dramatic events unfolding for it to be built. Sometimes we are called upon to believe based on the most basic facts. The tomb is empty. He is therefore risen. So what about us? Do we intentionally face our doubts with a willingness to build our faith based on the basics? Are we willing to accept God's will is present even if we don't understand it. The fourth revealing step. Jesus appears in an unfamiliar way to Mary. Something startling and new happens. Back to the she book, takes those tears with her. With she enters the tomb to take a look for herself. And suddenly the woman who was once possessed with demons finds herself in the presence of angels. One stands at the head of the stone slab, the other at the foot. Like the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place of the tabernacle, cherubim on either end, for this too is a most holy place. She is despondent as she tells them the reason for her tears. Then, from behind, another voice reaches out to her. Woman, why are you crying? She wheels around. Maybe the morning is foggy. Maybe tears blur her eyes. Maybe Jesus is the last person she expects to see. Whatever the case, she doesn't recognize him. That is, until... Mary. She blinks away the tears and can hardly believe her eyes. Master! Overwhelmed, she throws her arms around the Lord she loves so much. She had been there when he suffered at the cross. Now he is there when she is suffering. She had stood by him in his darkest hour. Now he is standing by her in hers. He had seen her tears. Now he is there to wipe them all away. Let's go back to our scriptural reading of that very account uh, read from the book Moments with the Savior. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. 
And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So again, you see that Jesus is missing, but there's that question, that nagging question, what really happened? Could it be? I don't know if I can, I can get to the point of understanding yet. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. So here is Jesus' first appearance in an unrecognizable form. He chose to appear this way before a woman, which I think is very significant. Even though Mary had not yet comprehended his resurrection, she seemed to be searching for answers, as she could not seem to stay away from the tomb. She was evidently the most ready to receive Jesus in whatever form he would reveal himself. Back to the reading from Moments with the Savior. Jesus interrupts the embrace to send her on a great commission to tell the disciples the good news. He is risen. I have seen him. I have touched him. He is alive. And so too is her hope. In his triumph, Jesus could have paraded through the streets of Jerusalem. He could have knocked on Pilate's door. He could have confronted the high priest. But the first person our resurrected Lord appears to is a woman without hope. And the first words he speaks are, Why are you crying? What a Savior we serve, or rather, who serves us. For in this hour of greatest triumph, he doesn't shout his victory from the rooftops. He comes quietly to a woman who grieves, who desperately needs to hear his voice, see his face, and feel his embrace. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So she obediently runs to speak this this wonderful, wonderful news. Now, Jesus in revealing himself, needed to establish the fact that his nature had changed, that he was the same in character, yet entirely entirely different in nature, for flesh and blood had been replaced by a spiritual being. This was radical, and this was his first revealing on such a level. Mary recognized his voice, and she did not recognize the way that he looked. Jesus' message to Mary, 1. I'm going to stay a while, as I've got more convincing to do. 2. But he stressed the fact, I am going to ascend. So he gives her hints, he gives her pieces to work with, but he doesn't put the whole puzzle together, because there's so much to it, and there's so much that it's such a quantum leap 
to go from just man to the to the, to the right hand of the throne of God that that the, the human capacity can't take it all at once so Jesus very gently is revealing these things so you have two elements here that demonstrate a change of nature in this particular appearance one he doesn't look the same and two he has the ability to ascend so in one occurrence here he has given two evidences that he is not the same flesh and blood Jesus that they knew. He's the same Jesus, but he's not the same Jesus. This was a difficult thing for them to understand. And that's why over these 40 days, he gently, carefully, methodically built his story for them so they could come to an understanding. So, from angelic announcement to appearing in a recognizable and familiar fashion, to faith without seeing, to appearing in an unrecognizable state. Jesus was methodically revealing the magnitude of the effects of his resurrection. Small steps give opportunity to find clarity as one seeks understanding. So, again, we always have to come back to us for us as we observe this uh, this this step by step revealing are we carefully observing the small steps of clarity that Jesus gives us as we wrestle with our personal tragedies and doubts and Jonathan that's one of the things we need to understand is that God's grace is so great in our lives that when we do have tragedy and have doubts he doesn't expect us to be able to absorb it all at once. He gives, it, gives us the clarity in just such small little steps as this. Because that's all we can take, small steps. Right. And when you are given small steps to be able to learn to understand something, you are then in a position to be able to absorb it so the next small step makes sense. So the next small step is something that you can say, okay, I see where this fits now. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Today's episode is Jesus' Resurrection, What Changed? Coming up, how do you help many to believe in something they have never seen before? That's next. listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Today's episode is Jesus' Resurrection, What Changed? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 9.30 Eastern. That means we're on right now. If you want to make a comment, we'd love to hear from you. So, Jonathan, we are continuing these revealing steps. The fifth revealing step, Jesus' second unfamiliar appearance with a sudden disappearance. Back to moments with the Savior. They leave Jerusalem because there's nothing there for them anymore, nothing but memories of a might-have-been Messiah and what the world did to him. But though what the world did to him is over, the pain is not. There's the headache and the heartache and the hard lump in the throat. There's the doubt and the dead-end questions and the dark night of the soul. These are their thorns. 
These were their nails. These are their crosses. And they carry all these with them on the road out of town. They leave behind the rumors of his resurrection. They carry with them only the reality of his death and their sadness. The road they travel slopes slowly away from the city and then squirms around a convergence of hills. The simple composition of stone against sky is a welcome change from the Corinthian complexity of Roman architecture that surrounded them in Jerusalem. The expansive starkness of the terrain mirrors the landscape of their soul. The starkness makes room for solitude, and the solitude makes room for their thoughts, giving them a chance to uncurl from the fetal position that they've been in in the past few days. As they walk, their thoughts stretch and breathe into conversation, but the conversations are overcast with emotion. Tears come and go, so do their thoughts. They think of the beautiful dream the Savior had, the coming of God's kingdom, when His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, when nations would beat their swords into plowshares, when the wolf would lie down with the lamb, and there would be peace on earth, all the earth, and there would be goodwill among people, all people. It was a beautiful dream, and a dream they shared, but Friday shattered it. So this is On the Road to Emmaus, and uh, we'll go back to the scriptural reading that highlights uh, that story in Luke 24. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. Who would have thought it would come to this, Cleopas says, just a week ago? The crowds, the way they praised him, the joy in their voices, the tears streaming down their cheeks. The timing seemed so right with Passover and people from all over. I had so hoped. But the pieces of the dream are still sharp, his words fearful of going near them. So they hesitated, his lips trembling. I had hoped too, says the other. As they're consoling each other, a stranger comes, inviting himself not only into their company, but into their conversation. What are you discussing together as you walk along? The question stops them. Their downcast eyes search the road for strength to answer. Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asks. And they tell him the whole sad story. And we hoped he was the one, the one who would redeem Israel. Since the time they first met Jesus, they hoped he was the king he claimed to be and they waited for him to usher in the kingdom. But then he died. And they hoped again, based on his word, that in three days he would return. And they waited again. Friday. Saturday. Sunday morning. Sunday noon. Sunday afternoon. Then they lost hope. Another one of Friday's casualties. And without hope, they couldn't wait any longer. So they left. So as we go back to the scriptures, it is hope wrestling with disappointment. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And it's interesting, Jonathan, they're walking, Jesus catches up with them, he asks the question, and they stop. It says they stood still, because it was such an emotional thing for them. 
and so they begin to explain. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and other rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. It's so significant that they say that because it gives you confirmation. It's the third day, and we have pretty much lost hope, and there is Jesus standing right with them. They just don't know it. But also, some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Back to the reading from Moments with the Savior. But there were other words besides the ones spoken by Jesus, words that would have helped them understand his words, words they should have known and should have remembered and should have believed. How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Jesus does not chide them for not believing the testimony of the women or the testimony of the empty tomb. He chides them for not believing the testimony of Scripture. Then, book by book, beginning with Genesis, Jesus rekindles the fire in their lives that suffering has all but extinguished. Step by step, the wood begins to dry. Verse by verse, the sparks find places to live. And by the time they reach Emmaus, their hearts are burning. The three of them stop at the outskirts of town. The sun has continued on ahead of them, leaving an etching on the horizon, where there were once hills. Jesus starts to continue on too, but they beg him to stay, which he does. They find a place to stay, and they sit together and start to eat, when suddenly, the stranger is the Savior! As soon as they recognize him, though, he vanishes. We go back to the scriptures. Now their hope was wrestling with disappointment. Now their hope is beginning to be given clarity. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And Jesus, in this revealing, went to scripture as the basis for their ability to open their eyes. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and braked it, and he began giving it to them. This is such a Jesus thing to do. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Not our hearts burn us, speaking to us on the road 
while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Though life had caved in on these two men, enough light came through the fallen debris and airborne dust to give them hope. They couldn't see everything, but they could see him, and that was enough. Enough to give them the strength to dig their way out. Enough to keep them from giving in to their sadness or giving up on their hopes. Enough so that they could go on living, go on believing, and go back to Jerusalem to pass around the hope to those there who so desperately needed it. So Jesus again provided, this time to two disciples, or proved rather, this time to two disciples, that he was no longer a man, that that what he looked like to them did not define who he was. He became recognizable by what he did, showing that he was still their loving and devoted master. Further, he was able to vanish from their sight. Step by step, element by element, they are beginning to understand the magnitude of who and what their Lord is. So again, the question for us, do we allow the magnitude of who and what Jesus is to overwhelm us with clarity in the face of our tragedies and doubts? Well, now let's go to the sixth revealing step. Jesus miraculously appears to many followers. Up to this point, Jesus appeared to one, two, or three. Now that he's begun expanding the minds of a few and given them the ability to communicate their experiences, he again appears miraculously, this time to several. We go to the book of Luke chapter 24. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Again, he appeared as a stranger, but it was what he did that brought them back to the reality of who he was. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. Now, look, this startled reaction was in part because, oh, I don't know, the door to the room was locked <laughs> and there's no way to get in. And suddenly there he is. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut while the disciples were, the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. So not only was Jesus capable of vanishing as he had done in the previous revealing step, but now he could also pass through walls or doors. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do you doubt arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, while they still could not believe it because their joy and amazement. And he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus obviously appeared in his recognizable form and furthered their ability to comprehend him by showing them things they could identify with. 
They, he showed them his hands and his feet. Perhaps he had showed them, shown them the wounds of the cross. We don't know. And, and he showed them that he could eat with them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Jesus then tied his own words together with the words of prophecy as the absolute proof of what had happened and how it was that he was now miraculously standing before them. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending you forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And now, Jesus adds for the first time into his explanation, their part, their responsibility going forward to him and their responsibility to the gospel as well. The journey of clarity for Jesus' followers continues as Jesus appears as himself, though now he shows several followers that he can pass through inanimate objects at will. He is, at the same time, Jesus, yet so very different as he is now as a spirit being and no longer human, obviously wielding a spiritual power that they could never even comprehend. So again, for us, are we cognizant of the ever-present and ever-powerful existence of Jesus in all aspects of our lives. Does his presence bring us clarity and peace as we face our own personal doubts? And these questions, Jonathan, at the end, are such important questions for us because we need to grasp the depth of what Jesus did for them and then apply it to ourselves. Amen. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exercise in observation for us to say, okay, we've got doubt. There's a lot of things that can be wrong in the way we feel about things and the way we look at things. But so it was for the disciples after Jesus was crucified. It was a traumatic experience for them, and that traumatic experience paved the way for the small step-by-step revealing of the most amazing and miraculous change that they could ever, ever, ever even think about. And this gives us a sense of the, of the wisdom and glory and honor that Jesus had and, and the wisdom in helping his followers to be able to see him for what he was, small, small steps at a time. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Today's episode is Jesus' Resurrection. What changed? Coming up, with all of this proof of the risen Jesus, was there still room for doubt? Yes, there was. And that's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Remember, 
Welcome back. Today's episode is Jesus Resurrection. What changed? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 9.30 Eastern. That means we're on right now. If you want to make a comment, we'd love to hear from you. Let's go to the seventh revealing step. Jesus appears as himself and demonstrates his spiritual nature. With all of the varied appearances of Jesus in such a short time, the apostles and disciples had much to work with. They had angelic announcement. They had Jesus appear multiple times in a familiar form as well as in an unfamiliar form. And he could come and go miraculously. More than all of this, they had Jesus on several occasions point them to the prophecies of old as infallible proof of what had happened, and he verified those prophecies by reminding them of his own words. Yes, he had indeed been raised. Raised to a glory beyond their wildest imaginations. Yet, Rick, with all of this, we can still doubt. Thomas was in that little boat of doubt. He had not yet himself seen the risen Lord and was called upon to trust in the accounts of others. He was not there in the last revealing step behind locked doors as we see from the continuation of the John text. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Those words, I will not believe unless. Such are the proclamations of those of us who might be in that little boat of doubt with Thomas. Such a boat has no anchor of trust and finds itself listing about as we think and wish and we wonder and second guess and as we are reduced to desperately clinging to the sides of that little boat ever fearful of capsizing. Such is a little boat of doubt. Jesus understands doubt and if we are willing he will gently show us how to step out of that little boat of doubt and into the unsinkable vessel of his love and his power. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here with your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus faces the doubts of Thomas with the truth. He not only shows Thomas exactly what he needs to see, he demonstrates his spiritual power by recounting what Thomas had said eight days ago. Jesus had already invisibly been in the presence of Thomas those eight days ago. It's just that Thomas could not see him. Thomas, upon these words of Jesus, immediately 
displays the humility and faith that had been left behind when he boarded that little boat of doubt. Thomas leaps from his little boat of doubt as he worships the risen Lord. Sometimes, because of tragedy and doubt, the clear evidence of truth and hope that is presented can be ignored. Thomas had his heart in the right place, and Jesus knew just how to reveal himself in such a way that Thomas would again stand in faith. So folks, what about us? Are we too comfortable in our little boat of doubt? Are we truly looking for the clarity of Jesus' presence in our lives, even when we cannot see him? Because even when we cannot see him, he is there. Now the eighth revealing step. Jesus reveals himself in the familiar actions of giving to and lifting his followers. Thus far we have seen Jesus reveal himself by way of prophecy, miracles, physical gestures, and voice. Now he would reveal himself to his disciples in an even more familiar way. He would help them, feed them, and teach them as he had so often done before. He would now also remove the clouds of guilt that they had stubbornly covered themselves with. We go to John chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifests himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifests himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We also will come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So we go to the book Moments with the Savior, this time the chapter about Peter. What do you do when you've failed a friend? After you've cried till you're numb? After you've replayed the failure over and over in your mind? After you've run yourself down and can't think of any more names to call yourself? What do you do then? You find some way to hold back the pain. I'm going fishing. That is Peter's way of dealing with the pain. He's tired of thinking. He's tired of the incriminating conversations he's had with himself. He wants a mindless diversion, an escape. But the sea is unsympathetic, and the night refuses him a reprieve. In the melancholy darkness, Peter is lulled by the rhythmic slapping of the waves against the boat. His mind ebbs nostalgically back, back, back to when Jesus was in the boat with them and calmed the storm, back to when he walked on the water, back to when... Thus he passes the night away, throwing out his net and catching only slippery moments from the past. Memories. That's all he's got now. But one of those memories he wishes he could throw back. How he stood there when Jesus needed him the most. Stood there and denied even knowing him. Cursed and swore and... and... But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. 
Back to the chapter on Peter. And then he hears a voice like a smooth stone skipping out to him from the shore. A faintly familiar voice. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish. The words jostle a sleeping memory as Peter throws out his net. The water churns with fish. And as the net fills up, his memory wakes to a strikingly similar morning three and a half years ago. It was the morning Jesus first called him to be a disciple. He and his partners were cleaning their nets after they had fished all night and caught nothing. As they did, they listened to Jesus preaching on the seashore. He remembers when Jesus finished how he told him to row out to the deep water and let down the nets. The catch was so incredible the nets began to break and the boat started sinking. He remembers how he realized then that Jesus was Lord. And he remembers how unworthy he felt to be in his presence. He remembers pleading with Jesus to leave him. But Jesus didn't leave. Instead, he said that from now on they would be catching men. And the next three and a half years made that catch of fish look like a handful of minnows. It's a precious memory, the dearest one to Peter's heart. And the Lord, so sensitive, stages the entire scene just for him. From the empty-handed night to the net full of fish. It's all for an audience of one. Peter. So we go back to the scriptural reading that was depicted in the book, Moments with the Savior. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So there it is, Peter, the impetuous one. He figures out that it's Lord because John says it. He jumps in the water and he leaves them about 100 yards away, dragging this huge net of fish. <laughs> I mean, typical Peter, he's so focused on seeing Jesus. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, and a hundred and fifty-three. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And it sounds so typical of Jesus, as though he never left. And he's giving this, this, this dose of familiarity so they can be comfortable with the fact that he is back. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Back to the chapter. As Peter is working the net and reliving the memory, it suddenly dawns on John. It is the Lord! What do you do when you failed a friend? You go to him. Peter can't constrain himself. He throws himself into the water, and for a hundred yards his tears mingle with the sea. The memory has done its work. Wet and shivering, Peter reaches the shore. His eyes look down to the warm charcoal fire. A similar fire had warmed him on the night of his denial. His approach is suddenly tentative and uncertain. He agonizes over that night as he presses his palms toward the heat. He yearns to talk, but the chatter of his teeth cuts his words short. 
Smoke curls above the fire, entwining his thoughts into a tangle, as the disciples land on the shore and join them for breakfast. They too are timid with guilt, and just eat and listen. This was a powerful moment for these humble fishermen, as they are face to face with Jesus, and finally, no one asked to ask, who are you? Now they all knew. With their knowledge came a sense of awe and an ever-deepening sense of humility as well as an awareness of the clouds of guilt that haunted them. After the meal, Jesus takes Peter aside. What he says is remarkable. What he doesn't say is even more so. He doesn't say, Some friend you turned out to be. I'm really disappointed in you. You let me down. You're all talk. Coward. Boy, was I ever wrong about you. And you call yourself a disciple? Instead, he asks simply, Do you love me? He asks three times, once for each denial. Not to rub it in, but to give Peter an opportunity to openly confess his love. Something Peter desperately needs to verbalize. By the third time Jesus asks him, Peter gets the connection, and a flame leaps from that smoldering memory, and it burns. But Jesus is not there to inflict pain. He's there to relieve it. Jesus had seen his bitter tears when the rooster crowed. That was all he needed to see. That was repentance enough. Peter looks up, longing for the faintest glimmer of forgiveness. And in a language beyond words, in a language of love, it glows from the Savior's eyes. Feed my sheep, Peter. Jesus' way of saying, I still believe in you. I still think you're the right man for the job. And with the words, follow me, the restoration is complete. The painful memory is healed. Three and a half years ago, Jesus asked Peter to follow him. The offer still stands, despite Peter's failure. Despite his failure, Jesus' tender forgiveness toward a guilt-ridden Peter took this step of revealing himself to a whole new level, for he gave his followers a profoundly practical sense of clarity. This Jesus was undoubtedly the same in character, but he also carried a depth of godliness that transcended human capacity. Peter especially would change as a result of this new beginning. Jesus had orchestrated everything to bring back two memories to Peter's mind, a precious memory and a painful one. The painful one he brought back not to rebuke Peter, but to restore him. He didn't want to make him grovel in the dirt. He didn't want to show him how right he was and how wrong Peter was. He brought it to the surface for one purpose and one purpose only, to heal it. To heal it so Peter could go on loving him and serving him without that painful memory leaning over his shoulder the rest of his life, wagging an accusatory finger. That intimate moment proved to be a turning point in Peter's life. Within seven weeks, he would preach the boldest sermon of his life. It would be in Jerusalem, the bastion of hatred against Jesus. Three thousand would be saved. They would form the nucleus of the church he would establish there. Later, he would stand before Caiaphas himself and the entire ruling council that had conspired against Christ. He would stand up to them in a bold confession for his Savior. And he would go on preaching about his crucified Lord, shaking the foundations of the temple and sending a tremor to rock even the mighty pillars of the Roman Empire. Finally, as Jesus said, he would be crucified. 
Eusebius tells us that when they were putting Peter on the cross, he asked to be crucified upside down, for he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner his Lord had. What kind of friend inspires devotion like that? A friend like no other. A friend who prayed for him when he was weak, and picked him up when he was down. A friend who forgave him when he failed. A friend who healed a painful memory. A friend who loved him. A friend who believed in him. A friend like Jesus. A friend who died first for him. The risen Jesus in these last two revealings, in the last revealing steps, addressed and dissolved two of the most debilitating experiences of the human condition. Doubt with Thomas and guilt with Peter. The clarity and familiarity of his message to both of these troubled men changed them. So for us, are we willing to have Jesus change us? Do we tenaciously cling to our little boat of doubt and, our, and stubbornly persist under our dark cloud of guilt? Or are we willing to face our Lord, to see his words, to hear his words, and to accept his love? This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Today's episode is Jesus' Resurrection. What changed? Coming up, what more can we possibly hope for from the risen Jesus? That's next. listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Today's episode is Jesus' Resurrection, What Changed? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 9.30 Eastern, and that means we're on right now. If you want to make a comment, we'd love to hear from you. The ninth revealing step. Jesus reveals himself to bid them farewell while giving them the magnitude of their mission and the privilege of witnessing his miraculous ascension. So now for this ninth revealing step, we go to the book, this ninth and final step for today. We go to the book of Acts, chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days 
and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. The summary of Jesus' action steps of revealing himself tells us that for, for those 40 days, his appearances were stunningly successful. His revealing came through angelic announcements, being seen as himself, as a stranger, as one who could miraculously appear and vanish. His voice revealed him, his breaking of bread revealed him, his prophetic teachings revealed him, and his very character revealed him. He had shown himself unequivocally to be Jesus Christ, but he was now Jesus Christ, the powerful spirit being, far above any station that a mere man could manage. Why these overwhelming proofs? There was world-changing work to be done as a result of his change. Back to Acts. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Holy Spirit would change everything, and his followers needed to be steeped in the conviction of Jesus' resurrection and glory to be able to wield such godly power. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know, times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses before both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remote parts of the earth. So in this last revealing step, Jesus gives specific instructions about where and when. And he also tells them that just because they will have God's influence, it does not mean that they will know all things. Such advice dovetailed well with the lessons of deep humility over the past 40 days. Because Jesus had so meticulously prepared his followers these past 40 days, he was now totally convinced they were able, capable witnesses. There was no question that, they could, that could not be answered by them because of all the appearances that Jesus had made. For they now knew in the deepest recesses of their souls who Jesus was. Their, who are you, Lord, question had been answered for all ages to come. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The risen Lord Jesus was first announced to have ascended up from the grave by two angels, all clothed in white. And now, as he ascends up to his Father, he is again announced by two angels, all clothed in white. This announcement was not the end. Oh, no, 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 no. It was just the beginning. For the angels also spoke of his returning again, the same returning that Jesus himself had talked about. This return would be for the purpose of entirely finishing the work that he had started. This return would wrestle the kingdoms of this world from Satan's grip. It would dissolve all of the ungodly governments of this world. It would end the reign of sin and terror and death. This return would restore that which was lost. What was lost? Human harmony with God, almighty on a perfect earth. So Jonathan, those are the nine appearances of Jesus. There are, there are a few others that we, we didn't put in, but we've got the process in front of us of what those nine appearances were able to accomplish. So, so let's just review them one at a time. What, what was the first revealing step? An angelic announcement. Okay, the angel said it. There was no evidence of Jesus because his body wasn't there, but it was just an angel speaking it. What was the second revealing step? Well, Rick, Jesus appeared as himself. He appears in a familiar way. It was important for him to appear in a familiar way that first time to establish the credibility of, yes, in fact, it was his. How about the third revealing step? Well, Rick, John believes from an empty grave, and faith this, without the dramatic experience. This shows us that all faith doesn't have to have the drama and the lights and the fireworks. Sometimes it's the quiet things, just like the empty grave. The fourth step. Jesus appears in an unfamiliar way to Mary. She did not recognize him physically, but she recognized his voice. What was the fifth step? Jesus' second unfamiliar appearance with a sudden disappearance. All right, so again he uh, appears in a way that's not recognizable, and then all of a sudden he's gone. So he adds the ability literally to vanish. 
the sixth step. Jesus miraculously appears to many followers. And if you remember, he just sort of just, just like, just behind closed doors, behind locked doors, just entered the room and said, hey, hi, I'm here. Seventh step. Jesus appears as himself and demonstrates his spiritual nature. All right. So he's now demonstrating the differences, same, same character, but higher nature. The eighth step. Jesus reveals himself in the familiar actions of giving to and lifting his followers. So that was where Peter was brought back, and he just did what he always did. He, he treated them the way he always treated them, and they had this sense of, you don't have to ask, who, who are you? Because it was very, very obvious. And then finally, the ninth step. Jesus reveals himself to bid them farewell while giving them the magnitude of their mission, and the privilege of witnessing his miraculous ascension. The magnitude of their mission, his final appearance before his ascension, is to show them that they have something very dramatic to do with their lives as a result of the change in his. So, Jonathan, let's go to the result of that. Let's go to prophecy that Jesus would have pointed to, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then, back to Micah, chapter 4, Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine, under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken. Though all peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord 
our God forever and ever. So, Jonathan, as we wrap this up, it's a really simple thing to look at when we uh, get a feel for what's happened here uh, with this, this whole story of the steps of the uh, revealing of Jesus. Any final thoughts before we, we finish? What a caring and sensitive way Jesus revealed himself to those he loved so that they could handle it and grow step by step to truly know who he was and that he was there and what he will become um, when he was raised to the Father with all power and glory and might to bring this kingdom to its full fruition. That's about the size of it. You know, we have got such a wonderful experience to look at here when we see how this all works together and how all of the things that Jesus did after he was crucified and raised between the resurrection and the ascension were for the purpose of giving his followers not just hope, not just clarity, but direction, but confidence that they could do the work because Jesus, in fact, was risen and was more powerful than they could have ever imagined. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. It certainly has been a, a blessing for us to present to you the story of the steps of the revealing of Jesus after his resurrection. So until next week, Jesus is risen. Think about it. And folks, remember, we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think at ChristianQuestions.com. <laughs>